invite you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. You may recall that last week we considered uh, this uh, verses 1 through 4. In verses 1 through 4, Paul is giving us a sort of instruction manual on church unity. He told us in this manual what the motivation for and the definition of church unity is. And then he concluded by giving us the action plan. How do we actually achieve this kind of unity? And he pointed us to humility. It's by fostering a mindset of humility. That is the way in which the church of Christ will achieve this unity that he's laid out for us. When our passage this evening, Paul will now actually tell us how we can possess this kind of humility. So please turn your attention now to the reading of God's holy inspired word, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Hear now the word of the Lord. The Apostle Paul says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Well, thus ends the reading of God's holy and profitable word. May he write his word upon our hearts uh, this evening. When you go on a long road trip, especially um, a cross-country road trip, for example, there are a couple of things that are absolutely essential for this trip to take place. First, you oftentimes need some sort of directions, whether it's in the form of a map or a GPS. And for those of us who have never had to use paper maps, uh, such as myself, we're all the more reliant on uh, directions on a GPS. But second, we also need fuel. You can have your destination in mind, your GPS pulled up, but if you don't have gas in the car, you're not going anywhere. Fuel is absolutely essential. Well, in our passage this evening, the destination that that Paul has in mind for us as members of the Church of Christ is a life of humility. Destination humility. And this humility is what he described in verses 3 and 4. But furthermore, Paul points us to Christ as the means by which we will arrive at this destination. And Christ serves both as our directions and as our fuel in this life, uh, in this road trip of the Christian life. So Christ is our directions as he is the perfect example of a humble life. And his example directs and orientates our striving after humility. 
But Christ also, through his spirit, is the one who actually is producing and fueling this humility in our lives. You'll see this in verse 5, if you look with me in your Bibles. Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Notice that Paul says that this mindset of humility is ours. It's become ours as we are in Christ. By the Spirit, we have been united to the risen Christ. There's a real sense in which we are united to the Christ who's seated at the right hand of God by this mysterious operation of the Holy Spirit. As a result of this, we are being conformed into the mindset of our humble Savior. So this evening, as, then, as we seek to learn about how we will arrive at this destination of humility, we will consider two main points. So we'll first consider Christ as our example and Christ as our fuel. Christ as our example and Christ as our fuel. And we'll actually be going through this passage twice. Uh, the first time we go through this passage, we'll be going through it uh, with the lens of Christ as our example. And the second time we go through this passage, we'll be going through with the lens of Christ as our fuel. So first, we'll consider Christ as our example. Now, it's important to note that there are obvious differences between us and Christ, and we need to recognize those differences. You know, Christ came to this earth as the God-man to accomplish salvation for his people. Now, we are not doing that. We are not called to live and die for the salvation of those around us. So there are obvious differences, but we are still called to emulate this mindset of humility which Christ exemplified throughout his entire earthly life. It's important to recognize that, to stress that. We are called to, to emulate this example, this mindset of humility which our Savior uh, displayed for us. So if you look with me in your Bibles, at the beginning of verse 6, uh, which says, Though Christ was in the form of God, Christ was in the form of God, in the person of Jesus Christ exists in two natures. He has a divine nature, he has a human nature. And Paul is saying Christ, according to his divine nature, has no beginning. He's equal with God. He's always existed in the unity and communion of the other members of the Trinity. But notice how Paul continues. He says, though in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. What Paul is saying here is that Christ did not use his divinity for his own advantage. Christ did not use his divinity for his own advantage. Rather, he willingly chose to submit himself to the will of his Father and come to this earth, take a human nature, and endure this life of humiliation that he endured for us and for our salvation. And here we see that parallel with verse 3. Remember in verse 3, Paul called each one of us to count others in humility more significant than ourselves? And Paul uses the same word here, this word count. You know, we're called to count others more significant. Well, here in verse 6, we see that Christ did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. 
Christ considered what it would take before time began to save you. Christ considered before you were even born how salvation was going to be accomplished. And Christ had every right, as the God-man, as, as being very God, he had every right not to consider your interests above himself. He had every right not to endure on this earth what he endured. Yet he did so, willingly, for you and for me. Paul continues in verse 7 where he says, Christ emptied himself. Christ emptied himself. Now, this has been the subject of much um, controversy and deliberation. Uh, There are some who think that uh, in Christ emptying himself, it was as if he hung up his divine nature in the closet and just took on a human nature when he came to this earth. Yet this is um, obviously not what Paul means by this. Uh, Christ, what he really means is that Christ poured himself out. And how did, how did he do this? How did he pour himself out or emptied himself? Well, he did it not by subtraction, but by addition or assumption of a human nature. That's why we see that doctrine of one person, yet one person who is fully divine, a full set of divine attributes, but yet is also fully human with a full set of human attributes. In fact, verses 7 through 8 then, Paul explains what he means by this phrase. What he means by this phrase is his human nature, this life of humility that he endured uh, in the flesh. We see that he took on human flesh, he took the form of a servant, and he died a lowly death on the cross. These are really the steps of Christ's humiliation. We see that Christ keeps going lower and lower and lower according to this human nature. So we'll consider each one of these in, in turn Uh, So first is the fact that Christ just came as a human, the incarnation. And this in itself is an act of humility. The fact that Christ willingly came to this earth and subjected himself to the common infirmities that exist in life under the common curse. This is a great uh, step of, of humility on his part. Just consider for a moment the fact that Christ grew tired hungry, thirsty. He experienced sorrow. He experienced the toil and frustration that comes with working in this world. He himself was uh, a carpenter for a while. He experienced betrayal of those closest to him. Yet he did this. He experienced this without committing even one sin in thought, in word, or in deed. Remember, this is the person of Jesus Christ who existed before creation began, is equal with God. Yet he came to this earth in human flesh, experienced life under the common curse for us. This is an amazing reality to dwell on as we read our Gospels and think about uh, the life of Christ. But it's not that he just took on a human nature, but he took the attitude or the form of a servant This is what Paul uh, continues to say in verse 7. Now, this word that Paul used for servant, same word for slave. So when he would have uh, wrote this to his original audience, the church in Philippi, the original hearers would have likely immediately thought of the institution of slavery, which existed in their society. And this would have pointed to them, this idea of slavery, the extreme deprivation of one's rights. That's what we see in the life of Christ. He had every right not to endure this, but he laid those aside 
and he willingly took the form of a servant. And we see this exemplified in a very uh, radical way in John 13, where Jesus gets down and washes the feet of his disciples. Now, in that society and culture, having a master get down and wash the feet of his disciples would have been unheard of and unthinkable. And this attitude of service that we see in John 13 was not a one-time event. This exemplified his entire life, his entire life of service for uh, those around him. When we think of Jesus, right, Jesus who is in the form of God, and you immediately hear, if you didn't know anything else, you heard that this Jesus came as a human. You might think, okay, he'll be a king, right? He'll, he'll be um, respected and high, high position of authority and influence. We wouldn't necessarily assume that he'd take the form of a servant. But this is exactly what he did. It's like you know, the CEO of a major company willingly doing the work of a minimum wage employee. It's striking. And in fact, many of the you know, first century Jews and, and earlier, uh, they didn't expect Jesus to come in the form of a servant. They were expecting this Messiah to come in great earthly power and grandeur to set up this earthly kingdom in Jerusalem, to reign like David and Solomon, to conquer all of Israel's uh, physical enemies around them, to lead them in battle. But Christ came as a servant. This would have been astonishing for them. But Christ didn't stop there. He humbled himself even more, as Paul says, that he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. At the same time that Christ was upholding all of creation, he was willingly being mocked and beaten and hung naked on a tree. And yes, as we contemplate the cross of Christ, this would have been excruciatingly painful. Uh, the fact that, you know, boys and girls, that Jesus, when he hung on that cross, he had, you know, nails piercing his, his wrists and his ankles. He was hanging from, from this tree by his pierced ankles, his wrists. Uh, he most likely suffocated as he couldn't even get, lift his body enough to get air. This would have been excruciatingly painful. But this wasn't even close to the greatest pain that he endured on the cross as he bore the very wrath of God for the sins of every Christian who's ever lived. Imagine all of the Christians who've ever lived, past, present, and future. Imagine every sin that just one Christian makes in their whole lifetime. Not just external actions, but in your thoughts, in your words. And every one of those sins deserves the just punishment of God. Every one of those sins needs to be punished by God's wrath. So Jesus on the cross bore every single sin of every single Christian, past, present, and future. It's quite an amazing fact to think about. Boys and girls, Jesus on the cross experienced hell in a very literal sense, so that you and I don't have to. When we think about, contemplate this humility and love that Christ has displayed for us on the cross, is overwhelming. The fact that when Christ did this, he was contemplating you, sitting here tonight. 
Notice further the, the reflexive pronouns here in verse 7 that Christ made himself nothing. Christ emptied, humbled himself. He willingly chose to do this. He willingly chose to become a man, become a servant, and to die the most lowly death on the cross. This example is the prime example of chapter 2, verse 3. This exhortation to, in humility, count others more significant than yourself. Because every time we are tempted in this life to stand upon our own rights, to seek our own glory, let us remember Christ, who, being in the very likeness of God, went to the very depths of woe so that we would be able to rise one day to the very highest of heights. Christ went all the way to the cross for you. And part of his motivation was to to be obedient to the Father, but part of his motivation was to redeem every single one of his people. He counted you more significant than himself. And this, brothers and sisters, is the example that we are called to emulate within the church of Christ, amongst one another. And remember, Paul is calling the Philippians to humility for the sake of church unity. That's part of his broader argument here. So imagine a church in which every member took this seriously. Imagine a church in which every member strives to display this this mindset of Christ to one another in the body of Christ. And this is the culture that Paul desires not only for the Philippian church, but for this group right here today and every church that exists under the Lordship of Christ. You may be wondering, as we now look at briefly at verses 9 through 11, which speak about Christ's exaltation, now how is this an example to us, right? Verses 6 through 9 seem pretty clear. But how are verses 9 through 11, which speak about Christ's exaltation? How are these an example for us to emulate? Well, it is an example to us, but in a way that's different than verses 6 through 9. Verses 6 through 9 are meant to norm our life, our life in this life, in this age. But Christ's exaltation points us to the life to come. We just saw in the Heidelberg Catechism what our hope is, that we will one day reign with Christ. So we have that great hope of one day um, entering into the benefits of this exaltation as we reign with Christ in his state of exaltation. But until then, we're called to a life of humility. So this passage, a broader point that this passage um, uh, calls us to is this principle of suffering before glory, humiliation before exaltation. You know, the first will be the last and the last will be first. This teaches us that the pattern that norms our Savior's life, in humiliation before exaltation, is the pattern that norms our life. We are looking forward to glory, but glory isn't promised in this age. It's promised in the age to come. Well, Christ is an example to emulate, and it's important for us to recognize this, but he's not first and foremost an example to emulate. Christ, first and foremost, is the Savior of his people. And because of this, he is able to produce this, or fuel, you could say, this kind of humility in his people. So this leads us then to my second point, which is Christ as our fuel. So we see in this passage, uh, 
not only an example to emulate, but we also see the work of our Lord Jesus Christ who accomplished our salvation. But why? Why did we need to be saved in the first place? What necessitated Christ having to come in a, in, 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 uh, a human nature? What necessitated him having to take the form of a servant and die a lowly death on the cross to go to these great lengths? Well, to answer this question, this brings us all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2. Many times when Paul speaks about Christ in, the, uh, in his epistles, he is speaking about the work of Christ in contrast to the work of the first Adam, which we read about in Genesis 1 and 2. And Paul likely is doing that here in our passage, even though he's not uh, saying it explicitly. Now, when Adam was in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 1 uh, through 3, God gave to Adam his law. And his law was kind of summarized and codified for him in Genesis 2, where God commands him not to eat of the tree of the knowledge and good and evil. So Adam really had two options before him. He could disobey God's command. And if he disobeyed, what would be the consequence? I think we know, right? Death. Death not only for himself, but for all of his children, including, um, which extends even to us today. But the second option that Adam had was obedience. Obedience. And if he obeyed, what would have the consequence been if he would have obeyed? What would have been eternal life? The opposite. Eternal life not only for himself, but also for all of his children who would come after him. In fact, we're told in a number of places throughout the Bible that the Garden of Eden was not heaven. The Garden of Eden was not heaven. You know, if Adam would have obeyed, he would not have lived in the Garden forever. The Garden never was meant to be eternal. In a lot of ways, the garden was a sort of test. You know, boys and girls, uh, you know, when you take a test in school, uh, thankfully, that test doesn't endure forever. It has an end point. If you didn't study very well, you're, you're hoping that end point comes, comes soon. But tests have an end point. So, too, this garden had an end point. For example, we see in a well-known verse, Romans 3.23. I'm sure we all know that. I've heard that verse before. Right? For man has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Man has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Well, Paul, as he's saying this verse, is likely referring to the first man, Adam. And the implication is, if Adam would have obeyed, what would have happened? Well, he would have attained the glory of God. The glory of God, in Paul's mind, is living eternally in the presence of the glory of God with the impossibility of sin. That's eternal life. The garden still had the possibility of sin, right? It was a test. Thus, if Adam would have obeyed for this certain length of time, he would have earned heaven for himself, for his people, or his children after, after him. But what happened? Which option did Adam choose? We all, I think, know the answer to that. He flunked the test. He disobeyed. He brought about death for himself. He was exiled from the garden, not to eternal life, but to a life of toil and hardship. 
So Christ, this Christ that Paul is describing for us here in Philippians chapter 2, came to the earth as the second Adam. He came to this earth to right the wrong of the first Adam. He came to this earth to do what the first Adam failed to do. So Christ's obedience consisted of him righting the wrong of the first Adam, meaning he had to go to the cross and pay for the sin of Adam and every sin which proceeded from Adam. But he also had to do what Adam failed to do, perfectly obey the law and earn us heaven. To perfectly love the Father, perfectly love those around him, and score a perfect A on the test, as it were. We see Jesus doing this very thing in Philippians 2.8. Notice how Paul says that Christ was obedient to the point of death. He was obedient to the point of death. He not only went to the cross to right the wrong, but he also obeyed perfectly the law of God to ace God's test, to earn heaven for his people. So how do we know that Christ actually did this? How do we know that Christ succeeded in his work as the second Adam? There are many, many people who died on Roman crosses in the ancient world. The reason we know that Christ succeeded is because of verse 9, which says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Adam didn't earn the exaltation of God. He was exiled we see that God's exaltation of Christ assures us that the Father has accepted the work of the Son. This transaction has been completed, as it were. That his work has been approved on our behalf. It's a a wonderful assurance for us. And now the incarnate Christ reigns as king over the entire universe. And one day we read here in verses 10 through 11 that every knee will bow and every tongue will one day confess Christ as king and as Lord. To step back for a moment, one aspect of this salvation which Christ has fulfilled for us as the second Adam is that he sent us his spirit. That was, that's one of the things that Christ has accomplished for us. In Acts 2, Pentecost comes because of what Christ has done. It's the Spirit, then, who grants us this mindset of humility, who makes living this, this life of humility, which we all testify to, is very difficult, possible, though imperfectly, in this life. Again, this is exactly what Paul means in verse 5, as he says, "...have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ." By the Spirit, we are united to Christ and thus are being conformed into the mindset of our humble Savior. Thus, to put it another way, Christ then fuels through his Spirit this mindset of humility that we're called to display in this life. Well, Church of Jesus Christ, as we strive after this destination of humility, Let us never forget Christ, who both grants us direction by his perfect example, but who also grants us fuel by his perfect work of salvation. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for Christ who came to this earth, leaving us an example that we may walk in his steps. We praise you most of all that Christ doesn't just stand outside of us as an example to emulate, but that now through his Holy Spirit, he is changing our prideful mindsets to mirror the likeness 
of his humble mindset. Oh Lord, we ask that you'd hasten this work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.